Hey everyone, I'm Jose Hernandez and welcome to Behind the Backing Track for Outside and Music. Outside and Music is a media company and record label that connects jazz artists with their passionate fan bases. Please visit us at our website at outsideandmusic.com where you can see our artists and their recent releases, our podcasts, video interviews, and links to get in touch with us. Behind the Backing Track is a monthly podcast produced alongside Over Here by Big Boss Nick Finzer and Extended Harmony with music journalist Dan Gross. Covering music from TV, film, and video games, this podcast digs deeper into the inner workings of the composers, arrangers, editors, and engineers of the commercial music realm. It's it just like, how do I, how, how does one begin a conversation with it, like, with, with, like, consumer relations or, like, you know? It is, it is hard to begin the, the conversation I mean, there's two sort of directions you have to look at a client relationship from. As much as you want to please the client, you also want to come out of a project feeling happy about what you've done yourself. And that's sort of always the moral dilemma inside is, how am I supposed to be happy with my work if, you know, for a lot of the work, it isn't really, you know, to some degree mine. Uh, It's with a lot of projects, you know, you're creating something for another person's work of art, say a game or a movie or something. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so like thinking about that, I, I like to think that it's, it's more of a personal interpretation on the artist's ideas. And if the artist likes it, that's awesome. And if not, that's when it goes into editing. So I, I guess how, how much freedom do you like to give up before you start saying something? <laughs> um, I mean, there's there's definitely a line, I'll say that, uh, where whatever the client is asking for, you just have to say, you know, there's that's just not possible or that's, you know, really, really strongly not advised. Uh, and, and, you know, sometimes there are clients where you just know that they're not going to take no for an answer. They're going to want whatever they want. Um, you know, one of the cases I always have is, you know, simple music. Um, you know, uh, I've always sort of enjoyed writing, uh, simple music to some extent, but at the same time, it's never really been artistically fulfilling to me. You know, I, I like to put little things in my pieces, little, you know, I'll have a three to two pattern going somewhere, you know, something just interesting in it, some sort of modulation. And sometimes, you know, you're working with a client and you just have to step back and say, you know what, he just wants the plainest, dullest string choir thing you could possibly write. And that's what you have to do, you know? I mean, at the end of the day, um, you know, as much as you want to say artistry is is a key thing to preserve, you still have to pay your bills. Yeah, that's, that's true. And so I guess um, I personally like to try to help inform the person like help inform the individual who is paying me uh, about certain musical like tendencies. Uh, I know that uh, sometimes people ask me to write in a certain like style in terms of like ethnicity, and I'm I I get really just like whoa, <laughs> you know. <laughs> I I I know how to write in the style I have been surrounded with my entire life, and I know how to write in you know. My, my own style but like when it comes to certain types of like uh everyone wants it to sound like super mario galaxy 
yeah, almost that 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 kind of buoyancy is is uh or at least the the buoyancy in the Super Mario Galaxy soundtrack is like super unique. Well, I mean, what I always say is, if you really like this particular sound so much, why don't you just go and hire whoever wrote that? Um, <laughs> I know it's kind of a little uh, <laughs> heavy-handed to say that, you know, especially since the people who write, you know, uh, famous soundtracks often tend to be extremely expensive to hire. Um, but at the same time, it's like, you know, I'm an artist. I come from a particular background. We all do, all composers. We all come from our own background. We have our own experiences and uh, have learned certain things that shape the way we create music. And as a result, you know, it's sort of important to say, like, you know what? If you really want this style, I'm probably not the right person for you. Even in the big leagues, with uh, major film productions, you'll see sometimes a composer will leave a project or the director will fire the compose or sorry, rather the producers will fire the uh, composer. Um, and more often than not, that's just a simple matter of the style wasn't uh, the style they were looking for. And one person or another said, this isn't working. We need to stop. I mean, it's kind of difficult to say that to someone, you know, who's just starting out to like learn how to say no. I mean, if they've never even gotten an offer or even been able to pursue an opportunity like that. Um, and, and I mean, on, on the flip side, uh, there's no problem. And there's, there really shouldn't be anything stopping you from exploring something you've never done before. You know, don't use your um, artistic style as an excuse to not reach out because you learn a lot when someone says, I need an, an electronic soundtrack and you've never done electronic music in your life. You know, like that's, um, for example, I always emphasize uh, if you're just beginning getting into, uh, especially scoring for video games, you should look into um, all the various contests and game jams that go on because these provide an excellent opportunity to really get a wide sampling of what's out there uh, in terms of both gigs and the types of people you will work with and also the kinds of genres you will be asked to compose. Uh, I, I did, uh, what was it, uh, Newgrounds Game Jam 7 and 9, and those were fun. Um, and I, I can see what you mean about uh, using those to really uh, uh, glean the uh, experience off of other people and not just um, that but also be forced to reconcile with artistic differences and be forced to reconcile with stylistic differences and as a result you know things like game jams often push you outside of your comfort zone and at the same time you know it's it's a typically a short thing say uh, 72 hours so you really don't have time to get pissed off at people about it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, all you have to do is just work, work, work. I remember um, in, in my first game jam, which was Newgrounds Game Jam 7, that, that was a big point of mine. Like I, you know, after the fact, I was done and it was like, whatever. Yeah, I was, I was and then I got angry <laughs> Be, because of all the little things that just like came up 
uh, in those three days, uh, and it was just really, really difficult. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know how to <laughs> exactly uh, say much else about that, but that game jam definitely was eye-opening in terms of uh, the type of people that are out there working right now in the industry or okay not not as a bad thing but <laughs> um like they're they're just very different uh creative styles so to speak um and so so i guess like you know in a in a composer sense that that's an issue uh wherein but for you you've been recently doing a lot of uh insert name here's instrument how is like joaquim joaquim's piano or uh is is this other thing uh that i'm about to say uh secret or not um i mean everything comes out eventually (laughs) (laughs) um and i can't pronounce the name of it either so okay never mind (laughs) i i was going to attempt uh but yeah, you can you can definitely attempt to pronounce that as as you're talking about it. So, <laughs> um, I probably won't talk about it. <laughs> oh, fair enough. <laughs> if if that's cool with you, just because I want to properly learn how to pronounce it before I, you know, do any sort of public video on it. <laughs> yeah. Fun top secret stuff. Where to begin? So. When you're trying to make a virtual instrument with a musician, uh, there's a lot of challenges in working with that musician as well. Not only can musicians have a lot of opinions on you know what sounds best on their instrument, uh, you know what sort of articulations they like to play, uh, what sort of style they like to play, what sort of range, um, but they also often have a particular brand that's part of their identity. And when you're trying to make a virtual instrument based around someone like the Ethereal Winds Harp or the um, upcoming uh, Joachim's Piano, you really want to involve them in the creative process as much as you can without ripping your hair out. Um, Because, I mean, there's always a certain extent where uh, whatever role the musician is participating is just too much, right? You know, if you let them you know, determine every aspect of the instrument, then, you know, you might as well be an employee and ask for a salary Uh, (laughs) (laughs) or have them be paying you. (laughs) But, you know, it it should be, uh, it's just like working, in my mind, working with a band in a studio or collaborating with a fellow musician. You know, you have to share the artistic vision. You have to say, what do you think? about this you know a lot of the development process is um the very early stages are typically the two parties exploring where that boundary lies you know often it's let's make a contract let's figure out who's uh responsible for which aspects of the production and this goes for making a song too like every time i've collaborated musically with someone you know, are you going to write the baseline? Am I going to write the baseline? Um, and that sort of dialogue echoes over very nicely into making virtual instruments, uh, where it's, are you 
going to be doing the recording or am I doing the recording? You know, who's going to pay for transportation? Who's going to do this? Whose responsibility is that? Um, and determining all of that is something that you should do before you even contact someone, in your mind at least. You want to have a position on ownership, on rights, on um, all the parameters of the recording. Let's say you want to do a big sample library of this instrument with a bunch of round robins, a bunch of velocity layers, you know, 12 articulations. It's going to be a big deal, right? And um, you also, you know, you want these particular microphone positions and, um, you know, this is your thought. And the other person could come up and say, well, I only want to do a little light thing with like maybe just one velocity layer and I'll just, you know, it's like, you know, easy peasy. And, it takes me. less than two hours to like record <laughs> all of the stuff. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, you can still do a very good instrument in only a few hours. I mean, like the, uh, um, the strum stick was only about four hours of recording. On that the other hand, like two strings on it. It has three. And I sampled, right. I sampled each one of them, uh, <laughs> although right. it is diatonic. Um, on the other hand, the Ethereal Wind's Harp took about 10 hours to record, mm. including all the vocal stuff. So, you know, the, yeah. the first step to any sort of, and this also goes if you're doing it yourself, determine the constraints and the uh, properties of what you're doing before you start. Uh, because if you're figuring that stuff out when you get to the recording stage, you're going to be in trouble. <laughs> and this yeah. is something I, I learned pretty early on in making sample libraries, um, especially when I first started working with musicians. Because for about the first year, it was just me uh, sampling by myself in a room, basically. And it wasn't until about a year later that I really started to start collaborating with people and saying, hey, would you like to come down and play the drums? Because I sure as hell can't. <laughs> um, and that's, that's when it started being, you know, what do you think? Uh, because often cases, the musician knows a lot more about their instrument than you do. You know, it's, of course. They of spend course. every day with it. And, and actually, there are some cases where the musician doesn't. Um, uh, and it isn't, I, I don't mean that as a measure of professional awareness, but a lot of people don't really deeply listen to their instruments. Um, like, for example, when we were recording bassoon, uh, mm -hmm. I noticed in one of the sustains had a very, very strong high harmonic. It must have been like the uh, ninth or tenth harmonic or so about there. Okay. And it was just. I never noticed it in a bassoon before, and either had the uh, the player who had played this instrument for probably the better part of a decade. Um, yeah. And it's you know you notice these things when you're sampling, uh, and sometimes they're good, sometimes they're bad. Uh, you know, like with the strings, we had to um, be careful about the uh, resonance of the strings because we weren't sampling those strings chromatically, and you'll notice the open strings will resonate when you play a note um, or pluck a note and if you're not sampling chromatically that resonance will get shifted up and down and it's going to sound absolutely atrocious uh, so you know a lot of cases I would sit down 
sometimes even days or weeks before the session with the musician and say, tell me everything. You know, what do you like? Mm -hmm. What do you don't like? Yeah. What are your thoughts on this? What are your thoughts on that? What articulations matter to you? Yeah. Um, and especially when you get with uh, working with more kind of esoteric musicians, they often have their own specialized uh, articulations and language, musical language that they've uh, developed either personally or studied with others to gain. Mm. And that becomes part of the instrument if you want it to. Because once again, we're going back to what image are we going for, right? Because mm. you can have the most straight, you know, textbook uh, orchestral piece of music, right? You can yeah. do everything right just the way name a composer would do it. And on the other hand, you can have a piece of music that's you. That's everything that you want to do. That just throws it all out the window and does what you want to do. Which piece of music is right? And I think that question is where collaboration, the crooks of collaborating with someone lies. Because in many cases, they can both be right. In other cases, only one of them can be right. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and then in some cases, like, neither is right. You know, they're looking for an independent sound that isn't yours and isn't what's expected of you. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, like, to bring that back to sampling, you know... <coughs> Sorry. No, it's all good. Uh, <laughs> cough break. <laughs> to bring it back yeah. to sampling, look at... Um, are you making a traditional orchestral trombone sound? Or are you making that trombonist sound? You know? Are you going mm. to impose standards on top of the performer? Or are you going to embrace their own existing uh, tone? And for a lot of people, the answer is standardize. You know, we need the most pure, straight, traditional sound or you know whatever sound they admire for other uh you know virtual instrument library producers it's more of what do you want to do yeah yeah uh that was a very long in-depth answer um, <laughs> <laughs> sorry i i figured i needed to get that out before the coughing begins <laughs> no i I, t I totally get that um yeah, I mean, I, I think... <laughs> Are we done? <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> I, I think personally, um, yeah, in, in my case, I, I think that um, achieving the individual's sound and making sure that is, you know, the character of it and everything else is portrayed in a, uh, on a, pro on a profession, uh, professional platter in a, you know, relatively unique manner um i think that speaks way more volumes than you know uh base good old basic uh, hollywood orchestra you know yeah but at the same time you know there are projects where you just have to accept that what people are looking for isn't quirky and unique um and 
I think a, a big part of uh, coming into awareness as a artist is knowing when to be you and when to not be you. Um, mm. Because there are times, you know, and, and a lot of people get very mad about the idea of, oh, they're selling out, you know, oh my goodness, how could they do that? <laughs> when at the end of the day, I mean, your audience is what matters. You know, yeah, okay, there are there is art for art's sake. There's expression for the sake of expressing oneself. Um, but there's also, you know, you, first off, you need something to live off of. And second off, you need to um, be able to grow yourself, either as an artist or as a brand. All right. So it, was there any ever a point in time where you got like super invested into a project alongside the artist and like then you had to kind of cooperate and um, uh, what's the word for it? Compromise. Oh. There we go. Uh, yeah. Ha have you ever had to do that or have you ever gotten into experience that you just like ended up caring a little more? than you had wished for and then like had to compromise. On oh, you mean things. like you go into a project thinking someone wants one thing, but then it turns out they actually want like a different thing, but you think it would be better with one. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's just part of the process. I think, I mean, you're always going to have a project that you misinterpret. It's just, you know, we're all different people. We all come from different backgrounds the developer may see one direction out of their game and you may see another. Uh, and sometimes, you know, you just have to listen to the developer, even though they, they you know, may have the, the musical prowess of a, of a P, they may, uh, <laughs> they may, you know, know something about the image of the game and the overall feel that you don't. So, yeah, I would definitely say there are, times where I've gone into a project expecting one thing, preparing all of my energy and mindset and resources for this one thing, and then you get rolling on it and they say, actually, no, that's not what I'm looking for at all. Um, and actually, I don't even think that's that uncommon to run into. Um, just the developer, blah, blah, blah. just the uh, just the process of making anything. <laughs> is a uh it's always going to be a conversation and until you're the one with all the money it'll remain that way <laughs> i mean if, if you go into a project and you're bankrolling the whole thing you pretty much get to determine everything about it yeah you know, that's why, you know, when there's a TV show and they say, oh, you know, the studio ruined it. Well, the studio were the people funding it. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that that makes sense. So, uh, hot take. How do you feel about temp tracks? Um, I mean, they're not great, but... it can almost be worse when you're dealing with someone that has a fanatical love for the music of a particular um, show. It's, it's especially bad on, on fan projects. Um, mm -hmm. 
for example, like a project, a fan project for, uh, say, a, a Star Wars fan project. You know, the people making it would say, oh, we're going to temp it with John Williams. And then when so-and-so comes along to score it, I mean, even if you could uh, legally make this fan project, let's say it was all um, legal and everything and whatnot, uh, you would run into a lot of trouble because these people want John Williams. You're not John Williams, and yet you're the one who's going to be composing it. Um, so yeah, temp tracks can be annoying, but almost more annoying is when someone has a one track. Like, I, like I've dealt with lots of people who seem to wish that they could take the music of one game and stick it in their game. Like, I mean, I've said this before, but Super Mario Galaxy, tons of people just love that soundtrack to bits, and they just wish they could, you know, from speaking to them, it sounds like they wish they could just take that music and put it in their game and have that be the soundtrack. And it's very, very difficult to persuade them uh, to not do that. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, my issue with temp tracks is mostly that it just like stales uh, music because then... If well, it sets people up. They think mm -hmm. they're going to get this, and then when you make something, you know, even if you make something that's really good, it's always going to be different. And if people are expecting this sound and you give them that sound, even if it's a little bit different, they're not going to be happy because they've been kind of conditioned to like it the way it sounds. So, yeah, I mean, temp tracks are important in the process of producing something, but mm -hmm. they can also be... Yeah, of course. I mean, everyone will say a temp track can be a dangerous thing. Um, you know, and, and for that reason, there's a couple steps you can take. I mean, you could have them, uh, you know, if, if you're doing the temp track or have any influence in it, you could try to get them to use like old shitty MIDI sounds for the temp track. So that way, when you come along with something that sounds uh, remotely realistic, uh, it'll definitely be an improvement. Uh, the temp yeah. track could be like just the piano music or something. Mm -hmm. um, and then when you oh, come yeah, along with a full a orchestral piece, you know, so there's a couple ways you can, if you have an active part in how the temping goes in, then you can actually, you know, try to influence that. If you don't, you could be screwed. And there are so many extraordinarily entertaining uh, bits from TV shows and movies where you just hear that temp track coming right through the speakers. <laughs> um, I mean, I was, I was listening to one soundtrack the other day, and I just heard Hulse Smars just right through. I mean, like that. There it is. Oh, There's man. Mars. <laughs> I mean, and I'm... The composer of this soundtrack was is a very good composer um, and wonderfully experienced. Um, but it just was a case of, you know, here's the temp track we put on it. Can you make it sound like that? And, you know, sometimes when you're the composer, you just have to say, okay, okay, fine, fine. <clears throat> yeah. yeah. And you can have fun with stuff <laughs> like that. Like, You'll notice Mars and everything. I mean, Mars is, it's, it's everywhere. Um, 
You'll notice it in a bunch of the Star Trek movies and TV shows. You'll notice mm-hmm. it in all sorts of um, just movies all over the place. Whenever there's an action scene, you'll get, you know, uh, that rhythmic um, motion going or, or a lot of it, you know, uh, you'll hear Stravinsky quotes a lot, um, Rite of Spring. Um, but it's entertaining uh, <laughs> from a, from a, uh, an end user. It's not very entertaining when you're the one who has to uh, work on it. But, I mean, you can have some fun. Like, you could change it into a 9-8 feel if it's a 6-8 feel. Or yeah. um, you can change something that's in duple into triple. So you can pull the strings a little bit and, steal, and still uh, come out feeling like you're still an artist on the other side. <laughs> I mean, ultimately, you know, we already see this technology emerging where... Uh, neural network or uh, machine learning powered software can come in and create a score in the style of a particular composer. So yeah, Yeah, we talked about it last time. (laughs) Yeah, we, yeah, we did. But like, think about in the future, then people who want the generic typical sound will just use that tool. And Mm. then people with a bit more of a budget, who want to have something more bespoke and custom sounding will hire an actual composer. Yeah, I I think that's a fantastic compromise, at least for, you know, uh, sating the uh, thirst. Of well, I mean, the that's, that's how it's, it's always been. I mean, look at when virtual instruments and synthesizers came out everyone was ripping out their hair saying, oh, there no musicians are going to ever play on a score ever again. Uh, it's all going to be synthesized. And yes, there were a lot of scores that were heavily synthesized, and even still to today, a lot that are you know almost entirely virtual instruments. But there are still a lot of scores that rely on real musicians playing real instruments. Um, and I don't think that's ever going to go away, you know, especially in the upper echelons. You know, there's there becomes something romanticized about having real musicians that I don't think, even as a virtual instrument developer, uh, will ever go away. Yeah, that makes 100%. If you're going to be recording parts of your music, then you'll need to uh, be careful because... If your player isn't good enough, you'll actually find some of the virtual instruments can be more consistent, you know, or or if you have particularly cheap microphones or poor preamp or whatever. So if you are going to use real instruments, you need to have the right equipment for that. And And I I guess what, what would you say is the the bare minimum of right equipment? Well, you should uh, hope, I mean, if if you're doing more orchestral work, uh, you should preferably record in stereo if you can. So you need a a pair of microphones, Um, you know, just some, even just some basic uh, pair of uh, small diaphragm condensers will do the trick. You'll need, you know, pretty much any audio interface made today will do the job fine in terms of uh, recording quality. 
Um, but I mean, the biggest issue, of course, is space and a competent musician. And space, you know, you can do quite a bit um, with your own space to treat it and prepare it in such a way that uh, it, it isn't particularly unpleasant. Um, and with regards to a musician, you know, you always want to, uh, if you can, figure out who you're going to be working with uh, when or before you compose the part. If you know in advance something's going to be played and try to write around their um, interests and abilities. So like, for example, um, I actually just recently recorded a uh, bit on hammered dulcimer. And I don't mm -hmm. really know how to play hammered dulcimer. <laughs> I can improvise on it uh, decently. Like I know all the different scales and such, but if you put a piece of sheet music in front of me, it'd go, huh? Um, so <laughs> like, for example, with that, they said, okay, do some free improv. So I did a couple takes of just different kinds of free improv on the instrument, trying to match the feel of their uh, backing track, basically. And it came out pretty well. Um, so that's kind of a, a good example of where and how you can insert parts, you know, especially the more free and open the piece is, the more you can add to it, um, you know, with uh, featured performers. Like there was one track um, I did that was a completely freely improvised piece um, between me uh, on a type of uh, Native American uh, whistle and an individual on guitar. And we just played this like four minute piece, uh, just, you know, spur the moment improv. And then that, I later added some uh, virtual instruments on top, some stuff from Chamber Orchestra 2. And then uh, I sent that off to a friend of mine who is a uh, percussionist who specializes heavily, you know who this is, uh, who specializes heavily <laughs> in um, uh, all sorts of hand percussion and uh, <laughs> ethnic percussion. And he did percussion backing tracks for that. And I mean, it came out really well. Uh, it's actually in a game right now. Um, so... You know, think about your workflow. This is this goes right back to what I said at the beginning. You need to have a plan on what you're doing before you do it. You know, if mm -hmm. if you just start writing, um, you know, an English horn part that you really want to get played, but you have no idea how to find an English horn player, you know, maybe you want to think if you can sub that out to an oboe. Or maybe you can, you know, replace it with a soprano sax or a clarinet or uh, something else that you can find if, if you don't have access to that. Um, or, you know, even switch it to another instrument entirely, like violin. And, I mean, of, of course, I do have to say, at the end of the day, if you're going to be recording stuff, um, you want to make sure... Um, what was I going to say? <laughs> I forgot what I was going to say. <laughs> Sorry, I got distracted. Um, God, it was a really good point, too. At the end of the day. At the end of the day, if you're going to be recording something, talking about violins. Yeah. Oh, at the end of the day, 
if you're on the fence about whether or not you want to record something or uh, just use a virtual instrument, think about how complex that part will be to uh, do up in the virtual instrument. So like there are some things that are no brainers to do in virtual instruments, like a snare drum or, um, you know, uh, even string sections are fairly, fairly convincing nowadays. Um, but for example, a solo violin, you really have to get in there or, or solo fiddle, um, especially when we're talking about folk music. I see people pop up all the time and say, I want a folk music virtual instrument that can do a really realistic fiddle. And I'm just like, you're kidding, right? Uh... It's impossible. Or it, it isn't impossible. It's just incredibly hard due to the constraints of the MIDI system because you can only do so much. And when you want to really get in there and tweak every little bit, you practically need a master's degree in phrasing to really make it sound real. I mean, you do. Like, I've taken three classes on phrasing in my life. They have been by far the greatest experience for virtual orchestration I've ever had. Um, just talking about how do you start a phrase, where does it go, and how do you end it? It sounds like a no-brainer, you know, especially, you know, if you're sitting there with your mod wheel and your keys and you're playing around and, you know, okay, we get we get louder and then, no. Notes within the phrase have to be shaped so that they lead into each other, but it has to be the right notes that lead into each other. You can't, you know, and if you turn it around, you're saying something completely different. You know, if, if you put your, your, your connections on the ands instead of the beats, you know, there's all this all this stuff and the great thing about real musicians is that they're trained in all of that you know mm -hmm. like you don't and you like you don't even need to go to school to learn how to phrase because you can listen to it yeah i always say this the subconscious knows more about music than the conscious ever could hope to and you can spend hours consciously tweaking your MIDI parts, trying to make them sound perfect, or you can go out and hire a real musician and record that part. I mean, at the end of the day, it boils down to economics. How much money do you have? How much money do you want to spend? And what's important to you? You know, if you don't care really how it sounds, okay, load up your, uh, your Roland general MIDI and uh, <laughs> go at it. But um, like if, if getting a really realistic is performance is important to you, as much as buying the hottest new solo violin library is a good idea, befriending a really good solo violin player is almost a better one. Hey everyone, hope you all enjoyed another discussion with Sam Gossner. I also talked to him in the first episode along with Simon Dalzell on the craft of instrument sampling. The second episode is an interview with Christopher Madigan, the composer of Cuphead. And looking into next year, we have some very special guests, including Joaquin Horsley and Carlos Ian, both prolific arrangers ready to talk about uh, arranging. <laughs> Here's wishing everyone a fantastic holiday season and a happy new year. Till next time. <laughs>